It has been 10 years since the 2008 financial crisis, uh, but it that financial crisis has impacted us in many ways and is still impacting us. Joining me to talk about the impact, the the history leading up to it and where we are now is uh, Adam Tews. He is a professor of history at Columbia University and the author of Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. Good afternoon, Professor. Hi. How are you? Very well, thank you. Hey, listen, thanks for taking a couple of minutes to talk to us. And I want to sort of jump right into the the 2008 financial crisis because, you know, I think a lot of Americans think it, it was sort of a, a one-time thing that had to do with, you know, banking and mortgages here, and it was really just an American problem. But you say that is not at all the case. <laughs> well, it was a problem for the world once it happened in America, and the crisis that happened in America was in large part also a crisis of European banks. I mean, the banking industry, the mortgage industry in the U.S. is a little bit more like the you know, motor vehicle sector than we generally imagine, the same way as we take for granted Toyotas, Nissans, whatever, on the streets of the United States. European banks were all over the American mortgage system. About 30% of the securitized subprime mortgages in 2007 were ending up in Europe. Yeah, and I don't want to totally jump around on you, but I'm going to a little bit because I feel like all of the financial stuff we're talking about right now in the world um, is not nearly as simple as anybody thinks because everything is so intertwined, just as banking was then and still is today, correct? Yeah, I mean, um, America's largest vehicles exporter is BMW. And GM sells more cars in China than it does in the United States. Right, right. Um, well, can you, you know, for people who don't sort of really remember uh, in detail all of what when happened, what happened in 2008 and sort of how we got there, can you just kind of give us a little bit of a primer on how we got there and why it all happened? Well, I think the, the real estate, the intuition, the, the common sense that this was driven by real estate is not wrong. That was the trigger. There was a one of a series of booms in real estate. This was an unusually uh, serious one. The United States real estate market spiked. It also spiked on the other side of the Atlantic, which ought to have been a warning sign in Ireland and Spain as well. Right. And that, the bursting of that bubble was really what drove the crisis. But the question we have to ask is why that wasn't just like other bubbles bursting. So the dot-com bubble burst, for instance, in right. 2000, and that didn't threaten to bring the house down. That inflicted losses on investors. It led to litigation. It exposed fraud. But it didn't produce a systemic crisis. And what was different about 2007-8 is the bursting of the bubble hit the balance sheets of what are systemically, in some sense, the most important element in the circulation of money in the economy, but also the most fragile links in that circulation, which are the banks. And the banks went into spasm in the United States, but then, in fact, also across the Atlantic in the Europe as well at the same time, because they all suck funding from the same short-term money market sources. And when it looked like their assets were going bad, no one wanted to lend them or lend them money anymore. And it's at that moment that we're really experiencing a collective bank run of the type that we have never seen before. And that's where you really get to the heart of the 08 crisis and what could have been, I think, you know, something close to an apocalypse for uh, for the world economy. So in the in the wake of all of that, uh, the governments in the U.S., uh, in Europe, in Asia, launched an effort to kind of bail the banks out, right? And then now they're still, to this day, paying a political price for that. Can you explain? Yes, it was a forced decision. I mean, they were over a barrel. We don't call these banks too big for to fail for nothing. 
I mean, any one of them going down Lehman was a medium-sized problem, and the damage that was uh, caused by its failure was, after all, spectacular. If a really big entity like Citigroup had gone down, or one of the very big European banks like Barclays or Deutsche Bank, it would have been a complete disaster. So the politicians were forced to act, but the consequences were also dramatically unequal, if you like. A a big bank failing uh, elicits huge support from the government. Uh, Somebody losing their home or becoming unemployed is just thrown onto the welfare lines. There's an evident inequity about this. And of course, the banks had engaged in huge risk, which had put them in this position. And the people who managed those banks had become inordinately rich doing so. So you were, in a sense, rescuing those who were most responsible for the crisis and who profited immensely from it. It would have been amazing if there hadn't been political fallout from this. And then to add to that, there's a real reluctance on the part of the Obama administration to go after any of the key bankers because they're terrified of increasing the sense of risk, increasing the sense of uncertainty and exacerbating the crisis. So so you're saying if the Obama administration had been more forceful about going after some of those uh, bankers, what what would have been the result? Well, it's a what if. We don't know for certain. But it, it does seem plausible that the Trump upsurge was driven by fury at frustration with anger. And if that was motivated by the sense that the contract had been broken, that the American dream was not what was promised, then one of the ways of venting that is certainly to show that some of the people responsible for that frustration are being held to account. Yeah, absolutely. Adam Chu is on the phone with us right now, author of Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. So all of the political fallout, the Trump uh, election, Brexit, all of that, you are tying this all sort of back uh, to that financial crisis, correct? Well, I think of it as like the baseline. I mean, history is a kind of musical composition. There's a lot of strands to it. There are soloists blowing their own trumpet, as we well know. But they, that takes place against the backdrop. And for me, the financial history, the economic history is like the baseline uh, in, this, in this musical composition. Without it, the, the story doesn't really have the coherence that it needs. You don't understand the propelling force. It's not the whole story. Donald Trump is a completely singular a historical phenomenon. He's a unique individual. There are tensions in American society around issues of race, for instance, that go all the way back to the founding and the problem of slavery. And a political entrepreneur like Trump can mobilize those and then add Islamophobia on top of it, and you've got yourself quite a cocktail. But the environment in which he does that is an environment structured by the financial crisis. The environment in which the people pursued the Brexit campaign in Britain is an environment structured by austerity and the impact of the financial crisis too. So it takes both elements, if you like. This is a story which foregrounds that baseline of economic rhythm, of economic dynamics, of the ebb and flow of the financial tide. Yeah, um, I want to shift gears on you because we're we're almost out of time. But I want to ask you about uh, where we are right now because literally just uh, you know over the last twenty four forty eight hours we've had the trade war with China escalate even more. You know Trump uh, levying new tariffs and and China retaliating. Uh, where do you think all of this is heading? This is a a really deep question about the future of the United States economy. The China is the center of global growth right now. For Americans to be uncoupling from it, not just uncoupling, but doing so in a confrontational way, is an astonishingly high risk, a strategy for the U.S. to be pursuing. And paradoxically, it's precisely the export-orientated bits of the U.S. economy, agriculture, manufacturing in the U.S., which is put in the firing line by doing this. You can see why China is a massive challenge to the U.S., and it's a 
hostile political system at root. It's a fundamentally different political system with alternate and different objectives to the U.S. So there are real conflicts there which have to be taken seriously. But the escalation of trade tension is essentially gratuitous. Meaning? It's a village, it's a war of choice. Yes. Um, this was not something forced on the United States. There are mechanisms and allies that America could have mobilized for a collective approach to China. The Europeans are crying out for the Americans to join them in a collective uh, approach to China to try and maximize bargaining power and force the Chinese to negotiate over intellectual property, over access for Western producers. Japan could have been brought into that alliance as well. But uh, America chose to go it alone. Well, that seems to be the choice for the Trump administration on all of these deals. And, you know, just one last thing before I let you go. What is the take right now, you know, from the European side, you know, not only on our tariff sort of battles with them, but also when they're looking at what America's doing with China and Canada, NAFTA, all of that? It's, it's absolutely shocking uh, to them. Uh, countries like Germany are built on the alliance with the United States. Germany was reconstructed by the United States after World War II. German unification was brokered by the Bush administration. And it's not just the fact, uh, it's not just the question of Trump, because Trump is an exceptional individual, unique individual. It's what, how the GOP, how the Republican Party is taking this, that there isn't a more concerted pushback from the congressional party saying, this is hostile to America's interests. This is not the grand strategy that we want America to be pursuing. Then in a sense, uh, it's being tolerated by one of the two great governing parties of the United States, indicates that this is a permanent problem for the rest of the world. This is not just a matter of Trump. They forever after will have to deal with the fact that the Republican Party was party to this escalation. Yeah, absolutely. Adam Tews, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Uh, Adam, again, uh, the author of Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World.